Michael. How are you today? I, Luke, am pretty well given the week I've had. Tell me about it. It has been relentless uh, in a good way, I should add. I'm uh, fresh off the red carpet last night. The Arias here in Sydney. It was uh, this, will po- this will date the, the recording, but uh, I don't care. Uh, and uh, But wow, what a week, hey? Like, uh, it's just, um, I think that in, it, you know, it must be, I wonder what it'd be like elsewhere, but uh, we are definitely doing like two and a half years worth of events, awards, <laughs> everything in two and a half months is the mission in Sydney. Uh, how are you getting on? Yeah, good, mate. It seems to, life is, uh, I think, not returning 100% to normal. I was down in Melbourne last week for most of the week and it was busy. It felt really good. Um, a lot of busy restaurants. Um, everyone I'm speaking to, or not nearly everyone, is is, is um, talking about great sort of trading conditions and, and customers through the doors in all parts of the country, um, which is awesome. I know it's not the same for everyone, but uh, there is a real feeling of positivity, which is great. I'm in Sydney all of next week too, so I'm really looking forward to checking out some new places down there. Well, I hope you booked a hotel. I was. I understand we're running at a, a average of 80% occupancy in the CBD. And that well, yeah. Means, I, uh, uh, I actually I'm, got, I'm saying an Ace Hotel again, which will be nice. I'm looking forward to that. We should probably have dinner at Kiln if we've got some time. I'd love Just to. Asking you out on podcast. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, mate, life's good. Um, and today's guest is one that I am very excited to have on very generous with his time. I think in terms of scale uh, of operation within the Australian hospitality sector um, and even, you know, would com- probably compete globally in terms of scale, the business is is right up there. So ALH, uh, which most people within the industry would have heard of, and their managing director, Mario Volpe, um, will be joining us to just have a chat about his story through the industry, which I, I, I'm honestly um, not overly familiar with, apart from what you can read about him on LinkedIn, but I'm pretty keen to see how he's made his way into hospitality and ended up running Australia's largest pub group. Should be a um, pretty interesting story. And, and, you know, given the sort of uh, era um, and time we are in this uh, pandemic um, post and coming out of it now, it, uh, it's going to be interesting to kind of get his perspective, what he sees across the, the national market in terms of uh, what today, uh, the trends of today and trends of tomorrow. Yes, for sure. Well, um, mate, let's jump back to it and have a chat. Good night. Welcome to the podcast, Mario. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. No problems. We might, um, I'm sure many in the industry would have heard your name and, and obviously be very familiar with your business. And we will have done a little bit of an intro into yourself uh, coming into this episode. But uh, as, as you know, part of the, the, the main focus of this podcast is sharing the stories of people's careers within hospitality. And um, I'm going to hopefully not catch myself out here, but you are the leader of the country's largest hospitality group. Is that correct? As far as you know? As far as I know, uh, I am. Uh, yeah, we run 350 pubs uh, right around the country and we're part of the Endeavour Group, which is uh, also a retail uh, liquor organisation. Just tell us how you got to where you are now. How did you first enter the industry and how did you make your way to the Managing Director of ALH? Well, it's a story uh, that I like to tell um, because it's a story that's it's pretty consistent with uh, a lot of folk in the hospitality industry. But um, my my story started in Perth in the halcyon days of the 80s uh, and I lobbed over there from Melbourne and I couldn't find a job. 
Uh, and what do you do when you can't find a job? You go back to school. So I was about 18 or 19 and I figured, well, if I go back to school, have a crack at a university degree, I need to pay uh, my way through. So I rocked up to a pub and I was interviewed in the regional pub, well, probably 30, 40 k's out north of Perth at that stage. And I interviewed for a bartender's role, uh, but I didn't get it because uh, I didn't know how to bartender. But uh, I was offered a job as, as a glassy and uh, I wasn't a very good one uh, at that. Uh, but I quickly learnt the ropes and, and, and that was the sort of kickoff of my career. How, how did you progress from there? Well, um, it's interesting when you're in hospitality, a lot of things happen quickly and um, it might have been a couple of months into my role and uh, the duty manager there fell sick. Uh, and the owner at the Times threw the keys to me and said, hey, would you mind locking up? So at 12 o'clock at night, I flushed the beer lines, I emptied the tills uh, and, and locked up the safe uh, and closed up and very quickly started to adopt um, a leadership role within the organisation. It was a busy pub. Uh, and then from there, within a year or so, uh, I was a venue manager. And I was able to do that and at the same time study. Uh, I was studying a Bachelor of Business at the time and um, I, was, I was able to sort of sort of start to shape my career uh, aspirations. I had the choice there to be an accountant or to continue on uh, into the hospitality sector and it, it, I really embraced the hospitality lifestyle. I really embraced the idea of running a pub, getting connected with locals, um, and this, the whole sociability aspect of it all, uh, and 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 the the type of feeling you get uh, from a team when you know the pub's busy and everyone's pumped and making sure that everyone's having a good time. So it was something that really stuck with me. Um, so fast forward that um, a few years, and I found myself in a you know in a role in a, in a support role at Melbourne uh, for for ALH. And uh, from there, I was able to work across multiple projects in project roles, uh, looking at scaling food and beverage uh, strategies across a multi-site business. And I learned a lot about different markets and different jurisdictions and different operating models. And then uh, from there, uh, I spent some time in various sort of strategy roles with GUB and, uh, and consulting roles. But I always found myself coming back to hospitality, did about eight or nine years with the Coles uh, hotel business as well. So what I managed to do in each of those roles was take on a little bit extra uh, in terms of knowledge and responsibility and grow my appreciation for things such as property, uh, gaming, uh, marketing, digitisation. And then, um, like many of us spoke, you, you, you come back home and in 2016 I rejoined ALH. Uh, as a commercial manager, supporting uh, Bruce Matheson Jr. in his role as MD, and I was able to work uh, with him and uh, reacquaint myself with ALH, would now become a massive business. And then uh, late last year, I was given the opportunity to think about the role of MD at ALH when Bruce Jr. decided to retire, and uh, here I am today. Well, like it's a uh, incredible career journey. I've got a couple of. Uh 
random questions coming off it because in terms of um, the experience at the moment, I sit on the, one of the advisory boards to Torrens Universities on their hospitality um, school. And because of the labour shortage at the moment, one of the challenges I have is while I have um, people enrolled in courses, the rate at which they're presenting at, uh, at, at universities are uh, not necessarily in keeping with um, the minimum attendance standards without sliding into torrents there. But uh, because, you know, the, the industry is saying, come on, come on, we need people to work. And so it's kind of leading to a bit of a change in um, thinking around this kind of market credentialing. And, and of course, that's not unique to the hospitality space. But, you know, in your experience at the time, like, uh, did you know, that balance between work and, um, you know, study, how did you manage it? And do you think that as an industry kind of, you know, I think is going to go back to that or should we embrace the kind of environment that we find ourselves in and, you know, try to work with, you know, the changing market dynamic on education? I think um, the hospital industry, a great industry to get you to where you want to go, whether it's in within the hospitality industry or whether it's into a, a different industry. When we think about hospitality and careers uh, in ALH, um, we're not about necessarily um, attracting talent. We're about attracting and nurturing and keeping talent uh, and making sure that whatever their career objectives are, that they're supported with us. And so the talent pathways is really important. Um, and education is a, is a really strong part of the hospitality journey for many, whether it's, it's in a related hospitality field or whether it's within an uh, unrelated field. For me personally, it was about I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, and so going to uni uh, and, you know, being part of a both day and night type industry, it meant that it offered the great flexibility to be able to turn up to lectures and then close the pub at night. Uh, and it's got a, that unique um, appeal about the industry is that you can you can tend to wrestle both. And we're, now we, we hire over 60% of our workforce is casual. So it offers that flexibility to be able to do what you need to do in your personal life and in your career. Um, so for me personally and for a lot of uh, the folk within ALH, we're really proud about the fact that we can offer those opportunities to work in a flexible environment but also provide those career pathways for those that want to take up um, various roles within the organisation, both within the hospitality part of the business, but also within our group functions. We should say uh, I, I absent failed my first four years at Sydney Uni working in in hospitality because I just couldn't get that um, that mix of uh, work and attendance right, unfortunately. So it was a skill lost on me. But we could talk to you about people uh, on, from a number of fronts, I would suggest. How, do you mind me asking how many employees you have across the portfolio of, of uh, venues? Yeah, we have about 12,500 employees and, and obviously there's some seasonal peaks within that number. Yeah, right. So, I mean, you would probably, and, and sorry, the geographic spread of, of those um, assets is obviously pretty significant, right? I mean, there's probably not too many parts of the country you don't cover with your hubs. I mean, how, how are you approaching the current state of, of people and talent within the sector? Because there's, I mean, it, everywhere you look, there's challenges um, and with the scale that you're looking at, obviously, um, I don't know if that makes it easier or harder or, or it depends on, on where, where we're going to talk about in terms of location. But what's your approach at the, to people at the moment and, and, and how, are you, how are you finding it? Yeah, it's interesting. It sort of all comes back to careers, but um, the structural challenges within the industry have been there for a while and COVID uh, tended to amplify some of those challenges, uh, as we know. And, and so what we've tried to do quite ironically, is 
you know, post-COVID, the business is actually very buoyant. <laughs> and, and I know the industry is very, very buoyant, uh, but the labour market is really, really tight. Uh, but we come back to base and think about the industry and also the nature of the industry. The number one reason people join our industry is for career and career progression. And the number one reason people leave the industry is for career and career progression. So it's it's quite ironic in that. So so the way we're we're choosing to address it is uh, is is taking more of a medium to long term perspective on this. And there's incentives out there and there's things that you can do in the short term. But for us, it's really about connecting our team with those career opportunities and making sure that we're sort of nurturing the talent for the long haul to really truly understand um, what our team are looking for, but also providing them with uh, optionality around the type of career that they can progress within our organisation. And that might be the glassy to MD story, but it's also the vineyards that we operate. It's the retail footprint across 2,000 points of presence. But also, you know, we're an ASX-listed organisation, so within the group capabilities that we have across digital, across marketing, across people, across finance, it's quite a sophisticated operation. And what you might find and what we do find quite often is you start off behind the bar, but you end up with a finance-type role uh, analogy. And it's sort of... I get reminded of that every week. I do a video uh, and I connect with a different pub every week and I ask whether it's a venue manager or a chef or an assistant manager to tell us your career journey. And it's probably the most satisfying part of my role is to listen to each of those stories. And quite often we all start from somewhere. We all start from somewhere within the hospitality ranks. And I remember... Just a couple of months ago, I did one at the Kirribilli Hotel there in Sydney and I met uh, uh, a young assistant manager who just moved from a role in an administrative capacity and I asked her to tell me uh, how she's enjoying the role of uh, assistant manager. Uh, and she was really excited and she showed me around the pub. Uh, she told me about the history of the pub. She also told me about the community engagement and some of the things that she's thinking about in terms of how we want to pitch the hotel and, and the opportunity that we have within the community. She treated it like her own pub and she really had some great ideas uh, to make the place a better place. And I'm really encouraged by those types of stories. So our approach, I think in a nutshell, is career pathways and nurturing the talent and, and strategically, we've uh, applied a lot of thought around how we do that. Uh, we've got training management programs, assistant management programs, and development programs, and chef uh, development programs that all help not only nurture our talent, but also give them avenues to develop uh, their skills within our organisation. There's many questions that come to mind. I think the, the example of the video is a really good one and, and probably leads to the topic of, um, uh, or the, the main question I wanted to ask you, which was just around leadership at scale, because I think you'd have a perspective different to anyone else in the market, given the scale. Again, that video is a really good example of something that you do to connect with a, a single site, um, which is awesome. Um, but I guess, how do you approach your week? Are there any specific either practices, strategies, mindsets that you you have to implement or that you are you, you I guess think would divine define your leadership or management style across the business 
because there's so much room for things to go wrong, right, <laughs> and to get out of hand and for maybe that girl to be missed and 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 not listened to and therefore, you know, missing out on her full potential. So how, how do you approach it? Yeah, look, it's an interesting question and it's one that um, I think about a lot in terms of how I approach the role. But one of the benefits of working all parts of the organisation over a period of time is not only do you appreciate the localness and individuality of each hotel, of each role, but also you begin to, as your career progresses, appreciate the opportunity that is a scale business. And what you can't do is confuse the two in that you don't want to commoditize your offer. Uh, what you want to do is bring to life each individual hotel and let it flourish within its community. And once you understand that, you understand the role of scale is it's to support that objective. It's not to overwhelm the hotel with systems and processes. So I like to think of my role is giving each hotel the platform to be the best it can be. And it's more so about the things that the customer doesn't see. So it's all about the synergies around buying, around data, around systems, around processes. But what the customer sees is a local pub uh, that's wedded to its local community with local team trying to be the best that they can be. So the way we approach it is is to really hero the local pub and to be very, very thoughtful about the local pub and to support it in the best possible way. We're a corporate organisation, so we've, we've got to be careful not to encumber the hotel with elements of corporatization that can take you away from the customer experience. And so uh, we've got a, a leadership team that um, supports us across different functional areas, and they all take responsibility and the, the leadership responsibility of the organisation to heart and to make sure that we're aligned on a plan. Uh, our plan is pretty simple and it's relatable across all parts of our organisation. Uh, our team own it, we share it with them, we ask for their feedback and their commitment to. And I, I think we're an aligned organisation that tries to maximise the benefit of being a large community by enriching each hotel in its own individual way. I feel just like a local guy when I'm with the Um, might just change tack a bit because I've been dying to ask, and you mentioned data. It um, would be remiss not to get your insights across what you're seeing, both uh, across your portfolio, uh, across different states, like generally, like at a market level, part one. Part two, I guess, like um, any thoughts about, I guess, how those might be comparing to what's happening globally as well? Yeah, it's interesting that th there is a very strong regional component to how consumers behave and um, how they evolve. I think the first part of your question, um, the digital aspect has been probably the most telling part that's come post-COVID and we know that the digitisation effect has really affected how people look for search, book, pay, order for uh, the on-premise experience. And what we've seen there is the, the strong adoption of order and pay. We see now ticketing platforms that customers' preference is to book via digital platforms, not the conventional platforms. 
in our accommodation business, the customer's preferences is to book and search online rather than to turn up to one of our 2,700 accommodation rooms and and, and ring or, or ask for a room. So we're seeing that right across the board. How that manifests itself in terms of the customer experience is that we're seeing the convenience ultimately of the hospitality experience by virtue of that optionality improve. We're seeing things such as transaction counts and average spends increase because it's inherently more uh, convenient. It means that customers can enjoy order and pay or in our gaming business, enjoy a flutter on the poker machines through our Tito functionality in a more convenient sort of way. We also know that in a digitized sort of context, customers behave differently. So customers, as you know, eat with their eyes. So they're more likely to order a cocktail through a digital app experience than they are over the counter. They're more likely to trade up in wine uh, and spend more in digital than they are in the over over the bar experience. And the reason why is when you think about the customer choices, it manifests itself differently on a phone than it does in a conventional over the bar experience. We're also seeing that where customers are ordering their food or drinks used to be in a bistro or in a bar, but now they're in function rooms, they're in beer gardens, they're in sports bars, they're in accommodation rooms. So the idea of where you order your food and where you consume your food in the pub has changed. We're learning more about things such as how customers are engaging with gluten-free foods, veganism, healthy options by virtue of how they search for food, uh, whereas in the conventional over-the-counter or, or at-table experience, that information was lost. So what it means for us is that we're able to improve the service offer by virtue of understanding the customer more intimately in terms of their preferences. How we're seeing that manifest differently in each state to the second part of your question. I would say that Queensland, where we've got you know roughly around 140 odd pubs, there is probably a stronger appreciation for digital. And uh, in the in the southern states, uh, that's taken a little bit longer. We've got biases in our portfolio, so we've got a lot of regional pubs. In, in Queensland as well. So you see that manifest itself differently, particularly around school holidays and so forth. So when when school holidays happen around the country, what you'll see is the you know, North Queensland, the Gold Coast, the Sunny Coast really, really flourish. So we do have a bit of a portfolio bias in our hotels. So customers are booking further ahead uh, in terms of accommodation stay and they're actually lingering longer. <laughs> So it used to be the, the one or two weeks of holidays at school holidays. Now it seems to be the two or three weeks and, and, and adding on. So the tourism within Australia uh, by Australians is, is a bit different to what it was pre-COVID. So lots of trends, lots of macro trends that are infused with different product trends and, and, and probably more succinctly enabled by digital. Just a quick follow-up. Are you seeing that um, across the age spectrum? So like I guess it's... Um probably obviously at some level, like at a millennial level, like it's digital first, but, you know, at the older ages, is it still um, adopted at the same rate? Or It's a really good question, Michael, and uh, it's one that I get a bit, and I, I think, you know, my hometown is Victoria, and we have the infamy of being locked down six times in, in a couple of years. 
And as you know, in the industry, as we went through that lockdown episode in each state differently, we at various times asked all our customers to scan in with QR codes. Uh, and so we, we went digital first with that and we had some trepidation by some demographic groups around that. But the reality was that at the peak of COVID, we had uh, 500,000 people a week scanning in and scanning out. And we had the optionality there of being able to manually scan in. But what I think it did is it taught us how to do it because not only did you have to do it in hospitality, you had to do it in retail. So I would say that that bias around particular demographic groups existed in the early part of COVID, but the maturing of COVID and the requirement of COVID around scanning uh, and the universal nature of phones and smartphones and now smart TVs has meant that all demographic groups tend to behave very, very similarly, uh, surprisingly, in digital. I don't want to hang on the data topic for too long, but it, it interests me um, a lot. But, and in terms of the, the product side of things, do you, I'm sure you would be able, sorry, I'm, I assume you'd be able to track product trends and, and see how they move across the country based on your portfolio of assets. Is, is that fair? And is there any consistency with the way to which products are adopted? And then I guess that the, the trend or level to which people are purchasing specific products um, then moves across the country? Like do the, the trends tend to originate in Sydney for or New South Wales, for example, and then spread to other states? Or have you got any insight on that? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And I think um depends on the product category. But uh, a couple of examples might be that uh, moderation is a product uh, trend that's happening across all the drink categories and manifests itself quite differently in different states. But the champions of the mid-strength beer started in the warmer climates, um, so Queensland and also WA. And what happened there is is the march um, south through New South Wales and Victoria. You can see how that's happened and also from the west and across. So it's like a a sea of mid-strength beer overtaking. And and, and you can think about that trend and the reasons behind it, it's really about lifestyle and, and sessionability with the beer. Now we're at the point that the biggest selling beer is a mid-strength beer. Uh-huh. But also when you think about moderation and take it to the next level, the idea of no alcohol um, beers and also no cocktails, we ran a competition internally a couple of months ago uh, and I was just surprised. I thought it was a little bit nuanced and not such a big deal. But the engagement with team and the engagement with customers into this product category was probably equally adopted right around the country. So I've probably given you a couple of examples where in some cases the product march or the trend does have some regional relationship and then in other cases it happens equally and, and that's probably two examples of that. Sure. And you mentioned before you're finding people a, a, a booking accommodation maybe a bit further out and I think you, across a lot of your pubs, you have, you've got a, quite a strong Christmas day focus, which is, you know, it's, it's not a typical day that a lot of pubs operate. But I, I think I've read that you've got 80% of Christmas day bookings have already been done, which would, um, or, or made, sorry, which would suggest there's a, a, you know, a pretty good level of confidence, which is returned, which, um, you know, I think speculation back coming out of COVID when it was fresher in everyone's minds, would that confidence return? But 
I guess across that, the, the, your accommodation business, which many wouldn't realise it's, it's as significant as it is, and then even live music as an offering across your portfolio. Are we right in, in seeing that that confidence has returned and people are happy to commit and, and I guess with some level of surety that they're actually going to be able to attend a live music event or a Christmas Day event? Yeah, it, it's a really good uh, measure of, um, I think, the buoyancy which in the market and, and a little bit of behavioural change. The, the proxies, I think, for, for the next couple of months is, as you say, Christmas. So Christmas is the biggest day of the year in, in our business. We run in some venues lunch uh, and some venues lunch and dinner. We will serve around 45,000 meals in a day. It's a great time for our team. It's a great day also for our customers. And you start to think about um, the reasons why. And I don't know if you, you have the same situation in your own personal lives, but quite often at Christmas Day, you have to satisfy everyone, the in-laws, the outlaws, uh, and you, you, you're sort of wrestling between a lunch obligation and a dinner obligation and sometimes something in between as well. So pubs have become a great place to socialise. Uh, it's, it's the neutral ground, if you like, in terms of the manifestations of all families and their connected families. And we're the beneficiaries of that. So we've seen really strong growth in, in, in Christmas Day. We plan Christmas six months out and um, we have our menus organised and we open up our digital bookings early. And yes, this Christmas promises to be the biggest on record and that's on the basis of the uh, progress of bookings to date. Our entertainment business is also very important to us. We've had now, close to a couple hundred live events. And these are the ticketed events where you pay for a ticket uh, to enter as opposed to the ad hoc uh, music events on a Friday, Saturday night in a, in a corner pub. And, yeah, we're getting crowds of roughly around 550-odd uh, to each of those. So if I compare that to pre-COVID, uh, we're getting stronger attendance to those events and um it appears that consumers have missed the live element uh, and are going to the local pub and, and seeing their great acts. And we also see it in our food bookings as well. The difference, I suppose, in food bookings is people tend to book on the day or a day ahead. Um, so there's more of an immediacy in food bookings. And I think that's more related to making sure that you can reserve a table and, and, and in your favourite pub, the the time ahead in terms of those bookings is actually quite different to function trade, accommodation trade, and also event ticketing. So, uh, like, you're, it's like speaking to a mate, massive database. It's more than that, Mario, but like, it is just the mind, my mind's just racing in so many different directions because of the perspective that you have. But I, I guess, um, in terms of and like my my um my job has some people don't believe actually is to literally ensure people go out and have fun in the city. That's a, a government sponsored job, so you know, uh, it's not a practical joke. At least not no one's told me. But it, like it, it gives me great joy to hear that um, consumer response at scale. And I guess um if I'm being optimistic, can we hang on to that? Like it's, so, it's not just a um you know uh, reaction to being at home, but people are out and then the experience is now better because of some of the things you've been talking about, do you kind of see that as the opportunity do you, or do you think, we, you know, at scale we might sort of see it move back a bit after the pent-up demand's expended? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, I suppose when we think through the macro forces there, we do have some 
um, economic realities that we have to steer into as an industry. We know that hospitality for some is discretionary and, and they can put off or make other decisions to forego a hospitality experience. But when we think about hospitality uh, and we think about even with ALH, it has a rich 50-year history and it's had to endure many challenges, both the economic challenges and sort of structural challenges within. And what we found over the long term is people continue and want to go back to the pub. Uh, and pub is, is home base for many. Um, it's the core of community. And that has a resilience over time to be reasonably predictable in how consumers engage with the pub. So I think to answer your question, there is an element of pent-up demand and, and there is an economic reality that we're staring into. We're approaching it, though, with a degree of optimism in terms of how we can flex our offers and how customers can shop our offers in different ways. We also have the benefit of customers wanting to come to hotels because it still remains quite an affordable, accessible experience. And probably the other thing I'd like to mention is that our pubs are in the suburbs. It's, you know, it's all part of our local community. Uh, and with the hybrid sort of work from home type arrangements where a lot of our customers might be going to the office once or twice a week, they spend the rest of the time at home. Uh, and they spend that time at home, they're close to the local pub. And so what we've seen is customers enjoying our pubs during different day parts, uh, but also lingering at night time because if they've been at home all day doing what we do uh, on Skype calls and, and everything else, what, the first thing they want to do is get out and get to a pub and, and socialise with some mates. So I, I think there is some cautious optimism as we set sail for the second half of the year based on the economic challenges. We also, there's the sort of benefit of knowing that we've got a resilient business, we've got a resilient industry that has weathered the storm of those economic cycles. And, and we're pretty optimistic about the future. I know Luke's going to take us in a different direction in a sec, but I, I, I was talking to, with Luke just before you got on actually about um, some of the analysis that I've got across um, Greater Sydney. And it's interesting, the media tends to just be focused on the CBD as the one measure of whether people are out again and um and of course uh you know there are quite positive data around sydney cbd but uh the untold story is actually what's going on in the other urban areas uh and in terms of that work from home discussion and there's quite a lot of um in pressure to get people back to the office is the discussion but my analysis is is in line with yours which is why i think it's interesting is that the uh, what, what what this is giving people is time back in their day essentially and they're taking a portion of that and saying, I'm going to spend that out in my local community as opposed to sitting at home, um, you know, which I think is a growth opportunity for the sector more broadly. And uh, that um, is, I think, the thing that I'm going to focus on in my role because as some of those macro forces that you're talking about kind of come in in the next, um, you know, 6 to 12, well, if you've managed to grow the overall opportunity, then it'll be one of the cushioning effects, I hope. So anyway, I thought I'd um, – I'm glad to hear it anyway. <laughs> I 
well, it's added a, an event actually up on the Sunshine Coast this week, um, more focused on uh, accommodation hotel owners, operators uh, across the country. It was a bit of a, a conference and the, the topic of guest behavior had come up quite consistently across the day in that there is a noticeable change in the way that I think consumers are behaving, not necessarily from a you know a, a purchase or acquisition kind of um, perspective, but um, just their general behavior. And given the demographics of some of your hubs, given in terms of age profile, of course, it's such a big, a big band, I guess, of people that would be visiting your pubs in different parts of the country who have experienced different lengths of lockdowns. Have you seen anecdotally or we've got evidence-based, I guess, assessment of whether or not behavior has changed in specific areas? And I guess more pointedly, you know, there's been a bit of commentary with schoolies on, you know, there's some people that haven't been able to party up until now really like it's the first year that's been able to attend schoolies and the behavior has been quite different because they haven't had that two years of going to pubs and parties and learning how to socialize properly so very very long with the question i know but um have you seen much of a change in the actual behavior of consumers whether it's at late night um sort of entertainment driven events um or or other across varying parts of the country um look that there has there has been some change in terms of day part utilisation, so early early week expenditure, during the day expenditure. It seems like everyone's working for the weekend, although they're not. <laughs> they're, they're sort of working for earlier week occasions. Uh, so there's changes in behaviour in terms of how customers are utilising the local pub. In terms of the types of challenges with challenging behaviour, I'd like to think that when you're serving, you know, half a million customers a week, you're going to get some incidents from time to time. And we've got some pretty robust processes to manage, uh, you know, customer, customer care and customer engagement really well. And we track all our incidents. And I wouldn't say that necessarily it's a worsening environment from that point of view. What I would say is that, you know, in some parts of Australia at different stages, you know, we are sometimes a 20-hour-a-day operation. Uh, and so you have to be conscious of that and you have to make, manage customer and team care very, very closely. We, we have uh, reporting systems and we have frameworks to be able to contend with challenging situations. Uh, and we work really closely with all our regulators and also the local enforcement to make sure that um, any sort of uh, challenging behaviour is sort of dealt with immediately, and and we do a lot of training as well around making sure that our cust- our team is equipped to be able to manage those sort of challenging behaviours. So there was probably uh, just on reflection during COVID some spike of different type of behaviours, and a lot of that was, I think, in response to you know some consumers feeling aggrieved about being locked up and and, and some of the challenges within that. But post that, I'd say we're sort of gravitating to more of a normal, normal trend. The topic of, I guess, the future of your business and and strategy. Can you give us in, some insight as to where you're heading without giving away all your secrets? But um, uh, w- w- what's the future looking like? Is acquisition of, of assets still, I guess, high on the agenda? And if so, are there particular parts of the country that you, you you're looking to grow in more than others, or are there you know is there more of a focus on food, for example? How does it look for you? Yeah, we're very thoughtful about uh, our future and our future aspirations. And when we think about that, 
I think it's important to recognise our past as well. So we've got a 50-year history and, and we've grown by acquisition since 1974. And when you look through those phases of growth, um, there's two things that have happened. One is uh, we've built pubs through our national network incrementally, but also we've weathered changes in terms of how customers set up. So in the 70s, for example, it was the, it was the pub rock era uh, and all our pubs were typically big linear bars with uh, big rooms uh, that were filled full of the pub rock era. And then in the 80s with print driving and other things and, and the digitisation of music, we had these big spaces and nothing to fill them with. So we filled them full of family dining rooms and kids' playgrounds. And then in the 90s, with the advent of gaming and gaming regulation, we thought, well, here's an, op- an opportunity to be able to play in a, in a new market and, and we started to carve out gaming rooms. So we've got this pedigree of change. When we think about um, the turning point, for us, we didn't expect anything like COVID uh, and sort of brought the industry to a standstill. And, uh, you know, variously over a couple of years, we opened and closed. But what it did do to us is it helped galvanise around what we're here to do. And, and we started to think about the customer in a more considered sort of way. So we sort of answer your question when we think about our focus for the future, it really comes back to customer and making sure that our pubs are set up in a way that truly embraces their customer needs and, and through the ability to use information and data in a more thoughtful way and be able to exercise scale in a, in, in a more considered way, we think we can meet the customer needs better. We, we know that hospitality is really about people and, and I think the second part of our strategy is really about team and we, we want to make sure that our team are galvanised around a purpose and, and uh, a way of working. But they, we, we know about our team, they want to be able to impact the business in a positive way uh, and we, we've done a lot of work around thinking about what those things are and, and so we're galvanising our team in, in a way that connects all of our pubs um, to a purpose that's meaningful to them and relatable to them and I think the third part of our strategy is really about innovation and not only how it impacts the front of house but also back of house so the team experience in terms of systems and processes to help uh, enable uh, the best team experience, but also uh, from a customer experience point of view. So when we think about the future, we want to build on the heritage of our past, but continue to feel like our customers' uh, lounge room is at each pub, but at scale, and given the social experience uh, that customers want to connect with. So there's sort of three key things we're thinking about the final part, um, your question around growth, we're absolutely committed to, to growing our business. We think we've got some great opportunities both within our current fleet in terms of redevelopment opportunities and renewal opportunities, but also acquisitions in, in key markets. Just in terms of, you've got some really iconic assets, obviously. One in particular I think of, which I think of because I go there a lot, which is the Brecky Creek in um, in Brizzy. How do you feel about and I haven't thought about this question and probably won't frame it right, but how do you think about venues like that that have just got so much history? Um, there's a certain age to the asset itself and then the topic of either redevelopment and, and taking a business like that forward into the future because I was having a beer there with, with a mate a couple of weeks ago and the place is just, you know, it's it's obviously iconic. It's awesome. You, I personally wouldn't 
I was thinking about the 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 options you would have there to actually renovate or or take it forward from a design perspective or or whatever it might be. And there's a huge risk that comes with that because you might just lose some of that character and and soul. So um yeah, I was just really interested to get your perspective on how you look at a business like that and, and what your options are for the future because you, you know, every chance you could actually make it worse by trying to make it better, you know what I mean, if you did decide to go down that path. Yeah, look, uh, Luke, it's, it's one of the unique parts of our roles where we, we look at our what our specific role is and we understand that we're custodians of these pups. And, and our role here is, is, is to really respect its heritage and understand its heritage, its, its founding principles. Uh, and then what we hope to do with any renovation is to be thoughtful about that as a foundation uh, to inform all the decisions that we make around positioning the venue and redeveloping the venue. The reality is you know, pubs like that built in the 1800s and, and a lot of our pubs are built in the 1800s and the 1900s is that the use of the hotel has changed over time. You know, things like um, access to second floors, uh, access to things like toilets, air conditioning and all the mod cons and all the expectations of a modern consumer and modern environment has forced us to redevelop some of these hotels, but we do it in a respectful way. And I think to answer your question, it's really about coming back to what is the history of the hotel um, and, and what was what what do we know about the history that we can curate to tell the story and to um, you know in a in a custodianship sort of way bring contemporary relevance to that story and, and so that we're not necessarily diminishing any of that important history. Uh, that hotel was last renovated. Um, completely in 2004 and in that hotel I remember the conversations at the time everyone was wrestling with the idea because back then I don't know if you remember the hotel it was plastic chairs it was uh, I'm pretty sure it was plastic plates and it was a steak on the side with um, an Idaho potato and they had the loudspeaker that said Mr Butler your steak is ready and so some of the innovations over time has have been really considerate of the past, but also adding the contemporary uh, application of you know how consumers want to engage with these these pubs. In terms of um the uh, you know the one consistent in all that change, is it noise complaints from neighbours? Is that and is that just a Sydney thing? It, because I'm often asked, you know, what keeps me awake at night and uh, around my job, and that's bad pun but like it is it is you know our, our sort of propensity for the one resident next door we're having this at the moment uh here in sydney to say i'm not happy with this situation our fresco dining for example has been such a i don't get your views on it but you know why, why we weren't doing as much of it as we are now in sydney it's uh you know we'll ever, we'll ever reflect on that and but of course it's uh uh some pe- for some people it's a great use of public space and for others it's a a uh, impingement on other rights Do you, is that a, a a consistent theme for you yeah, look, I think um, we've modernised pubs in Australia in the last 20 or 30 years, and in many respects we've taken more of a European approach where you spill out into the streets. I love that character around streets, and sometimes you can't get through and the, the hustle and bustle, but yeah, there's an appeal about that. And if you've ever travelled around the world, I'm sure you'd agree that it, it can be messy and it can be loud and it can be a little bit difficult to get through, but it's also part of the spirit. 
of uh, a community. Uh, and we operate in some precincts where that's a little bit more prevalent than others. Um, but, um, you know, we, we try to work with council, with neighbours, uh, we, 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 with strata groups where, you know, sometimes those types of issues can be compromised for one or the other. And we're not an organisation that hasn't had noise complaints by local residents uh, and have to deal with them. And what we try to do is just sort of work through the issues and, and we tend to invest in systems and in infrastructure to be able to deal with it. But things like, you know, rubbish trucks that turn up at four in the morning and, you know, wake uh, whole strata, you know, we work with the, the, our preferred partner in that space and say, hey, let's change the roster so you're not, not doing that. And uh, noise can come from many areas. I think probably the biggest one for us is our accommodation business typically is rooms on top of a pub. Uh, and when you've got a, a band room evening and you've got some guests trying to get some sleep, sometimes sometimes it's challenging. But I think the important thing for us is just to be really clear up front about what it is. Um, and if you're a pub-style accommodation and you make sure that you know the guest is aware of the fact that it is a you know, a pub room uh, and that there is a band room underneath. And then what you find is they're quite okay with the experience, provided you set the expectation up front. Uh, and that's what we try to do. Well, that's uh, exciting to hear. We'll, uh, we'll we'll let you know how we get on. It's uh, it's um, Because it's going to be a lively summer. And the thing that I'm finding at the moment um, is that, uh, and in, in terms of those some of those macroeconomic effects, I just say it's very hard to fight the spirit of uh, at least Sydney siders when the sun's out and uh, it's the end of the year. Uh, inflation and the rest of it's a tomorrow me problem. Absolutely, um, I understand um, the challenges, and I, I think it's it's all about balancing perspectives. Um, and, and you know that's what we try to do in in, in many of those types of situations. Should we do the final five? Awesome. Do you want to do that, Mike? Sure. Well, uh, it's the the bit that we love. So the first question we have for you is a favourite book that you've recently read or a podcast that you listen to. Okay. Well, probably one that comes to mind is The Storyteller's Secret by Carmen Gallo. It's a, it's a book about stories being a powerful medium and it sort of resonates with me because I, I think about each of our pubs. One of the things we encourage is each of our menu managers to think about the story that sits behind the pub and to be able to tell the story. So uh, I think it's a great book and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's something uh, that um, we hold dearly in terms of the spirit of Bailoach. That's a good recommendation. I think uh, it's uh, I find myself using those references quite often these days in terms of um, the importance of storytelling and its impact. And I think coming out of the pandemic, it's uh, particularly it's one of those opportunities, isn't it, to kind of excite people about the different stories of um, our cities. Uh, in terms of um, a favourite album or artist, either right now or uh, back in the pub rock era, your choice. Well, you picked me, didn't you? Um, I'm a little bit of an '80s tragic. It's my guilty pleasure when I'm driving from one pub. To the other, to be honest, but um, some of the pubs that some of the bands that played in our pubs, you know, bands like Midnight Oil and Skyhooks, they all sort of resonate to me because they would go to the pubs and I sort of remember, you know, some of these bands. But if I had to pin it down to one, it's got to be in excess. I was, I was hoping you're taking you're, you're going to say that. Uh, all right, uh, favorite drink right now? Okay, all right. Well, 
I'm not going to give you a brand because you might judge me, but I'm going to say red wine, sometimes of the coffee variety, depending on who you're with and on occasions, but usually with friends and food. Keg, can or bottle? <laughs> that would reveal too much to me. So I'm, going to, I'm going to decline the opportunity to answer that, Michael. Fair enough. Fair box. enough. You forgot box as an option, Michael. Hey, um, I think we ask guests out a favourite venue, and um, sometimes I try to restrain their answers. But like, what about if you've got um, uh, one of your favourite children in your portfolio, or you can opt out and say, well, a great venue just generally? You may not know it, but um, it's a pub in Victoria. Uh, that's just a wonderful, wonderful pub, and it's the SB or the Esplanade, um, and it's got a it's got a real unique music heritage. It's it's uh, it's got great history. Uh, it's been faithfully restored. Great community significance. Um, it's probably a pub that you can genuinely say if the walls could talk. And I and I think it's uh um, we know it well, and I think the use of that word custodianship that you've used earlier in the podcast is kind of uh really um what the owners there have a, have a similar mindset around. And lastly, um, who in the industry are you most inspired by? I've had the great pleasure of working um, with a lot of industry captains, but um, without doubt, it's Bruce Matheson Senior. And just a, a really short story about him. Yeah, I mean, he's a person who took a chance in 1974 where he loaded his family in a car and drove to South Australia. And on his way back, he stayed in a motel and goes, gee, this would be a great business. And he went on to buy the Mount Macedon Hotel. He uh, had customers at the core uh, of what he thought about and, and the loyalty of appreciation of his team is, is, is second to none. A very simple yet profound sort of business philosophy uh, that saw him buy and sell more than a thousand pubs in Australia in the last thirty or forty years. Um, so he truly understands the value of the local pub, and yeah, someone that's a, a deep inspiration to me personally. Well, uh, I think uh, what a positive note to finish on. And Mario, I think uh, we've enjoyed the chat today and hopefully, um, as, as we touched on earlier, this uh, your own story, um, the stories that you've told on this podcast will kind of go on to inspire another generation of, uh, of hospitality leaders. Thanks, Michael, and thanks, Luke. I really appreciate your time and um, it's been great having a chat. Yeah, thank you, Mario.